thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Julia Ravey and I'm here with Chris Smith. Coming your way in the next hour, a COVID update as cases surge, modified lettuce to make drugs for astronauts and orangutans trying to stand out from the crowd. And human milk, the cells from a parent that go across to their baby. How science is making strides in producing lab-grown alternatives to formula feeds and the grown adults buying and drinking human milk. But why? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Reporting has gone a bit quiet on the COVID front, and that's largely because of what's been happening on the Russian front in Ukraine. But a quick glance at the Daily Dashboard or the Office for National Statistics breakdown reveals that cases are at an all-time high. Roughly one person in every 15 across the country is currently infected. So, as further booster doses begin to roll out for people over 75, adults in care homes and anyone over 12 with an immune problem, we thought it was high time for a COVID update, a COVID view, if you will, to explore what is happening and why, whether the current very much hands-off approach to management of the pandemic is the right one and what the future might hold. Paul Hunter is an infectious diseases specialist at the University of East Anglia. The problem at the moment is that a diminishing proportion of people who are infected are actually going for a test for England. For most of the pandemic, we've been picking up about 40 to 45 percent. And in the most recent data from the ONS, that was down to about one in eight. So in other so, words, there are eight times more infections out there in the community than the tests currently being reported yes, suggest. Yes. Yes, and probably actually a bit more than that as well. So, Because the, so the numbers yeah. that are being suggested are pretty high. I mean, if you look at the government's yeah. daily, daily dashboard and then you look at what the seven-day average would suggest is the daily rate and you times yes. that by eight, that's a stupendously yes. high number. It is. And this week it is almost certain that the number of real infections that are going on in the community are as high, if not higher, than they have been at any time in the pandemic. Now, what's underpinning that? Is that, as Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallant said at the Downing Street briefing when they unveiled the withdrawal of a lot of the measures, just -hmm. because more people are going to meet more often, so we're expecting more cases, or is there more to it? I think there's more to it. There was a huge Omicron wave around the world and there is now a subsequent second wave going on and and that second wave is due to the sublineage of omicron the ba.2 and that's 
the thing that has been increasing in the UK since Christmas. But on top of that, from about the 1st of March, we also saw that increasing and accelerating. And that was almost certainly due to behavioural change, partly due to relaxation of the remaining rules, and probably also as well because people are mixing more over the last few weeks. Is it translating into more severe disease, though? Or are we seeing cases but not seeing consequences? We're seeing hospitalisations rise. The issue is at the moment, a lot of that increases in people who are in hospital with COVID rather than because of COVID. Over half of all infections in hospital, the infection is not the reason for the person being in hospital. It's an incidental finding. In in other words, you've Um, got loads of disease in the community. People are going to continue to have heart attacks and strokes at the same rate they always have. So inevitably, if you've got lots of COVID about, you're going to be admitting people who also have a coronavirus infection. Indeed. If we look at perhaps the most sensitive measure, though, of severity, which is how many Mm -hmm. people are on ventilators, that number appears to be lower than it was last July when we were busy opening up the country saying, right, Freedom Day is finally here. We've got far fewer people in intensive care beds. It's about 200 or so compared to, you know, we had had double that number last year. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of starting to drift up a little bit because of the the number of infections. But you're quite right that the proportion of people in hospital who are actually in an intensive care unit bed is substantially lower than it has been throughout the entire pandemic. So that, you know, it is signs that the infection isn't being as severe as it has been in the past. And you can see this in in various other metrics, however you want to play it out, that the proportion of people who die is lower than it's been throughout the pandemic. And it's probably lower now than you would expect to see from seasonal influenza. So are we managing this the right way at the moment then, in your view? There's a lot of issues going on here. And the first is that we do know that immunity to infection wanes. After vaccine or even after an infection, you can get another infection. Although generally those second infections are less severe. The concern that I have certainly is that the longer you leave it between infections, the less protection you have against severe disease. We see this with influenza, actually. If you live on a remote island and you experience flu once every 10 years, then you often have higher fatality rates when you do get flu than you would where flu circulates every year. And so that there is an issue here about how long is the best time to apply these sorts of measures. And I was only today actually reading um, some reports going back to 2006 by a World Health Organization working party on pandemic influenza control measures. And, and basically the point that they were making it was that a lot of these measures never prevent spread ultimately, but they delay it. And early on in the pandemic, delaying the spread was really important, partly to protect the health service, otherwise it would have got overwhelmed, but partly because by the time, if you were able to delay an infection till the autumn, we knew about dexamethasone. Our intensive care specialists were much better at keeping people alive. And then, of course, if you were able to delay your first infection, your first exposure till 2021, when we had vaccines, then you were much less likely to die. But once you've got all those benefits 
and nothing else is coming along, then actually the value of continuing restrictions becomes a lot less. And the balance between the harm that these sorts of restrictions can do to people's mental health, to the economy and all these other things related to the benefits in terms of reducing spread of infection uh, starts to shift. Do you foresee then that we will manage this in the future a bit like we do the flu, where we've got this international surveillance system running, we watch what the flu does, we try to preempt its next move and we bottle that in a vaccine, we give that to vulnerable people in the autumn and we hope we've protected them for long enough for the flu to come through a country and then exit the premises, leaving behind people who may have had a brush with it but they've been okay. I mean, is that probably what we're going to do for COVID? To a large extent, yes. Over a year ago, Nature magazine did a survey of leading infectious disease researchers, and the vast majority of them accepted that this was going to be endemic, it was going to cause infections repeatedly. But over time, as people's immunity built up from both vaccination and natural infection, the disease itself would get less and less severe and become more mild. And in fact, that's what we're seeing. And interestingly, we're in a situation now with Omicron, the value of vaccine is to actually help make sure you survive your first one or two infections. And after that, your immune system will make sure that although you will still get infections, they won't actually put you at risk. Let's hope it stays that way. Paul Hunter there. Up into space now and astronauts experiencing microgravity during prolonged stays in space can develop osteopenia or weakening of their bones. This can be significant with a loss of up to 1% of their bone mass per month. But Kevin Yates, part of NASA's Centre for the Utilisation of Biological Engineering in Space programme, explains to Evelina Wang how he's grown a genetically modified lettuce that could help prevent bone mineral density loss. We modified this lettuce to include a gene uh, which instructs the plant to produce a fusion protein which we call PTHFC. This fusion protein is composed of two parts. The first is PTH. The PTH part regulates calcium in the blood and therefore regulates the amount of bone mineral density that you have. The second part of the protein is called FC, a bulky component that they attach to the active PTH. And by adding that, we increase the amount of time the Fusion protein can stay in the blood, thereby increasing its expected efficiency. So your hope is to have this lettuce that produces and contains the protein that treats um, bone mineral density loss? That's right. That's right. So either it may be possible that uh, you can simply eat the lettuce um, and get the dose that way. Otherwise, the protein can be extracted from the plant leaves. Is this protein an existing medication and how is it typically administered? So yeah, as as a drug, a a portion of the naturally occurring human parathyroid hormone is an FDA-approved drug called teriparatide, and that is given in a daily injection. So why can't you just bring the medicine with you into space? So for one thing, a primary concern is the amount of mass you'd have to carry to do that. As a rule of thumb, for every one kilogram of mass that you want to bring with you, you need 99 kilograms of support, power, heating and cooling, this sort of thing. The other issue is that cosmic and solar radiation can cause pharmaceuticals to degrade over time. 
But if you just bring seeds to grow plants, which will produce the medicine that you need, seeds are, of course, of a much smaller volume when you consider what you'll get out. And of course, you can take these plants to the seeding stage and make more plants from the seeds that are produced. Right. Why did you pick a lettuce then? We know that lettuce can be grown in microgravity. It's been done on the International Space Station. And one interesting fact about lettuce is that it's seen as having uh, benefits for psychological health and that for long time spent in space, having a green leafy plant growing and also as food offers a lot of sort of mental health benefits to astronauts. Oh, wow. So there are both psychological and medicinal benefits to this lettuce. Are there other applications you can use this lettuce for? Yes, I think that the fact that this works in the resource-limited environment of a spacecraft or something like that, if it works there, it will work on Earth. And there are a lot of places on Earth where medicine uh, of this type would be would be hard to produce because you need something like a bioreactor, um, which has to be temperature controlled, powered, uh, etc., and sterile as well. But if you can simply plant a plant in the soil, whether it's in a greenhouse or in a field to get medicine, I think there are a lot of places that could benefit from that. I am surprised he went for lettuce and not rocket, but there we are. Evelina Wang speaking to Kevin Yates. He presented that work at the American Chemical Society Spring Meeting this week. From baffling British weather. The sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. To looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come here on The Naked Scientists, how a breastfeeding parent cells end up in their baby and we analyse a sample of human milk bought on the internet. But first, when snakes, like boa constrictors, wind themselves around their potential lunch, their aim is to squeeze sufficiently hard that blood can't get back to the prey animal's heart, so it passes out, making it easier to swallow whole. But the snake's got a problem. By squeezing that hard, it's also potentially stopping its own lungs from working, meaning it could be at risk of asphyxiation. Shouldn't it? from Brown University, John Capano. We were really interested in understanding whether or not snakes could actually breathe when they're constricting because they're using their rib cage to kill another rib cage. Similarly, when they eat something, their rib cage kind of gets expanded. We've all seen snakes with really big food items in them. And we were similarly were wondering, can they actually breathe when their their body is swollen that, that wide? It sounds like a, a pretty obvious thing, but how do snakes breathe? So snakes breathe with their rib cage. We as mammals are actually kind of special in that we also use a diaphragm, but snakes and lizards only use their rib cage. They rotate the ribs, they make their chest bigger, which then causes a pressure change, which then causes air to rush into their lungs. And so how did you investigate what the snakes were doing then? 
So we originally were just doing some observational work. We are just watching snakes constrict and feed. And we were kind of noticing that they were breathing with a different part of their body when they were constricting or feeding relative to when they were just kind of hanging out in the cage at rest. So we originally uh, started with some electromyography. It's called EMG. It's a, it's a technique that lets us like actually measure the electrical pulses running through a muscle. And we found that the muscles that control breathing, these muscles that actually pull the ribs, they can turn them on and off in different sections of their body with like pretty good control. But that really didn't give us the resolution to answer the question we wanted. So then I had I actually applied to grad school and went to Brown in order to use this technique, x-ray uh, reconstruction of moving morphology, lets me actually look inside of an animal and see how the bones are moving inside a living animal. And then when I did that, I was able to actually use a kind of an experimental setup to prevent rib motions in one part of the body and then see if the snake would then shift it somewhere else, kind of analogous to what would happen during constriction or eating something really big. But we did a really like controlled experiment where we could replicate it really easily too. So what do they do then in order to avoid themselves asphyxiating when they're constricting things? How do they do it? So what we found is, so snakes have pretty long lungs. They're in boa constrictors, their lungs are about 30% of their body length. And in other snake species, they can go up to like 70 or 80% of their body length. But in these boas, they have the front part of the lung where gas exchange happens. And then the back part, which is just kind of a bag. And they normally will breathe in the front part. But then when we put the cuff on the front part and we compressed it down, they just stopped using those ribs entirely. And they just started breathing with the back part, which is really amazing because they're actually ventilating with the back region. So they actually just switch and start breathing further back down the tube and drawing air through that part of the lung in the front, even if that part of the body is doing something else. Is there not a sort of chicken or egg situation here then? Because in order to do this sort of behavior, that had to evolve for them to be able to do that in the first place, which then meant they could feed this way. How do you think it appeared, this behaviour, in the first place? Yeah, that's the real difficult question of this study, is it's really hard to tell which came first, the chicken or the egg in this scenario, because you're right, like constriction and large spray ingestion, they like require you to be able to breathe while you're doing them. So it would be really difficult for early snakes to exaggerate these behaviors to like eating prey that's like 100% their own, like their own body size. It's like me eating a cheeseburger that weighs 180 pounds in one bite. That would be really difficult if you couldn't already breathe while doing it. So we think that this modular lung ventilation mechanism either preceded constriction and large prey ingestion or sort of involved in concert with it. And then the feedback of being able to breathe a little bit better allows you to maybe constrict something a little bit bigger and then eat something a little bit bigger. And then the feedback of having that ability would then allow you to exaggerate these traits even further. But considering that snakes are literally just a tube of ribs and that they really have this fine rib control, it may also be possible that this like rib control may be one of the earlier traits of snakes is this ability to move ribs all along your body in order to like push into the environment in different ways. And that may have been turned into a ventilation mechanism that may have come from a ventilation mechanism. But just because of the way snakes work, I think that this rib control thing was probably a really early trait within snake evolution that then, and it's hard to tell which one came before before the other ones, but maybe some future work will figure that out for us. John Capano unraveling how snakes came by their ability to squeeze and breathe both at the same time. How we speak is very much governed by the environment we grow up in, from accent to slang to language, our group shapes our communication style. And after analysing years' worth of audio recordings, 
It's now been found that social groups also influence the vocalizations of orangutans, with more original shouts happening in larger buffooneries. I spoke to lead author Adriano Lamera. As humans, we kind of like very much to reserve our position in a special place among nature. And so, you know, first, originally, we were the tool user or the tool maker, right? And now there are books with thousands of examples of tool use, like octopuses use tools and ants use tools. And then we kind of moved on. Okay, we're not the tool user, but we are the only cultural animal. Turns out that that's also not the case. So we kind of eating away how special we are and somehow language is our last reserved stronghold. The prevalent theory when we started was that unlike human verbal behavior, great ape vocal behavior is innate, it's instinctive, it's automatic, it's reflexive. Individuals have no control whatsoever. It's just comes by instinct. When did you initially notice orangutan noises were different across groups in the wild? Well, that was actually right from the start. We started cataloging the call repertoire of orangutans at one population, and there were other populations relatively nearby. It was rather striking when, say, in in one population, some orangutans would be doing certain types of noises when they are building nests. And then you go to a nearby population and they aren't doing those sounds. Or And then you visit another one and they do different sounds. We just had to start collecting the data and the evidence. So that started almost 20 years ago. So what did you find when looking at orangutan vocal calls across these different groups? So what we found was that there is a social influence. Each individual is being molded by what he is hearing and who he's interacting with. We found that in high-density populations, populations where there are many individuals living one with the other, that they really like to constantly produce novel calls. They'll do variants that were never heard before. But they'll do that once, and then no one will adopt that new variant because everyone is doing their own style of thing, so to speak. And this kind of turns out to be very distinct of what's happening in low-density populations, populations where individuals encounter each other less often. And here what we see is that when they communicate, they tend to go back to the same repertoire. In this sense, they can be thought of more conventional, more conservative. What is interesting is that In the low-density populations, although they are conservative and always go back to the same set of calls, where there is a novel signal, they do pick up that new signal and incorporate it into their repertoire. So actually, their repertoires are more complex than the ones in high-density populations. Why do you think there is this disparity between the size of the populations and the number of like original vocal calls. To me, it makes me think of a big city like London where there's lots and lots of individuals, but they all live in their own little pockets. Is it like people are trying to stand out more? I think the parallel is is a legitimate one. And once we start thinking that language is a continuous process and there are things that we share with great apes, when we start looking at the data, 
new parallels and similarities will show up. Maybe when we go to a big city or we live in a big city and when we dress in a quirky way or we try to put our hair in a way that stands out, we may think that we're practicing our individuality and our free will and that those things are very human-specific. Well, now having similar data and evidence for our great apes, either that makes them more human or us more apes. And so in this way, I do hope that connecting us with our own larger setting will make us be more respectful and good stewards of the planet. Yeah, no, I really love that. And seeing ourselves as an extension of other animals out there should hopefully enable us to be better at protecting the planet and these animals and their habitats. Yeah, exactly. The same way as you respect a fellow human, you should adjust your respect to that animal. Fighting to stand out amongst the crowd? Sounds very human to me. That was Warwick University's Adriano Lamera about research he published this week in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Julia Ravey and Chris Smith. And breast milk is the special subject we're looking into this week, including how the cells it contains can jump into a baby's bloodstream and literally make mum part of her offspring, what it can tell us about breast cancer and the rise of online sales of breast milk and a slightly surprising consumer group. Over to you to explain this one, Julia. I am perusing the milk aisle on my local shop. Oh, there is actually spilt milk on the floor. No one's crying. Good to see. And for me, you know, I'm not I'm not the biggest dairy drinker. I actually don't I don't drink dairy at all. So for me, I'd like to go for a, an oat milk or a soy milk. But you know, I know people do like cow's milk as well. But how do you feel about human milk? For some people. It's right up their street. I guess people know me as the breast milk bodybuilder. Recently, a somewhat novel market has gained traction. Individuals selling human milk online. People's motivation for buying this body fluid vary, and we'll hear more from the breast milk bodybuilder later on in the show. But at The Naked Scientists, we thought, how easy is it to get human milk delivered to your door? I took to the internet to find out. Milk for sale. Let's see what this brings up. Human, ooh, human milk for sale. I can see some container bags with what looks like milk in them. Breast milk, healthy. Let's have a look and see if I can actually get some of this. Buy it now. And this is with second class delivery. So it will arrive in approximately two to five days time. I'm gonna contact the buyer to see if I can get it a little bit quicker. Oh, okay. That's sorted then, paid for, and it should be arriving tomorrow. 
And once this arrives, I'm going to take it round to the lab to analyse it to see what is actually in this milk and is this method of transport safe. I honestly didn't think it would be that easy to get. Let's see what happens tomorrow. Pretty surprising how straightforward that purchase was, isn't it? But what is it about human milk that's made it so desirable? We know from population studies that having this milk early in life benefits infants and could affect health later in life too. This milk has been honed by millions of years of evolution to provide newborns with a healthy start in life. As well as forging a strong mother-to-baby bond, human milk contains the right balance of nutrients so infants grow at the right rate. And it helps with the development of the immune system and the intestinal microbiome through the transfer of immune factors, as well as bacteria and other bugs. But microbes are not the only cells that get transferred during feeding. Cells from the mother also go across and they can take up residence in the baby. Gherkin Ustuk from Istanbul Medipol University has been looking into how and why this happens. What are the cells that go across Gherkin? They are stem cells. For some time, we know that breast milk contains stem cells, but what happens to them in the body of the baby was not known. So in our study, we tracked them to understand at least a part of their story. We should be clear, you were looking in animals, but animals are mammals like we are, so we can suggest that the same might be true in us. But what animals did you look at and how did you follow a cell out of the mother across the breast and then into the baby? The method was quite straightforward. We have special mice whose whole body cells produce a green-coloured fluorescent molecule. In short, GFP. We took normal mouse pups from a normal mother and had them breastfed by these uh, green fluorescent protein-producing foster mothers. The idea is any cell in the foster mother's milk would be labelled with these green fluorescence. So after pups are fed with this breast milk, we were able to track down GFE-labeled cells in the growing pups at certain intervals with advanced microscopy. And we found them. We confirmed what we observed under microscope with molecular techniques. And yes, breast milk cells were all around pups' body. Where in the body did they go, these glowing green cells? Practically, they came across with the cells in many parts of the animals, including blood and with the highest amount in the bone marrow. However, our aim was to look at one of the most difficult parts of the body to penetrate the brain, because the brain is normally protected from intrusion with a special barrier. Nevertheless, they were there and they had differentiated, became uh, neurons and support cells, namely glial cells. Have you tested out how long these cells persist for? Do we know once they're in the infant, how long they're likely to stay viable for? In the mass experiments, we found these cells living up to a year, but this was the maximum time we kept animals. So it's halfway to their expected life duration, actually. So I think unless there is a host versus graft reaction that is brain tissue rejection reaction, there is no reason why these cells should die. So what's the use of these cells? It's a very interesting question. First of all, beside these stem cells, uh, breast milk also contains immune cells. So by giving these immune cells to the baby, it is quite understandable that the baby is supported immunologically by the mother. But 
stem cells are quite curious because we have some new findings, additional findings in other experiments uh, showed that these cells lodge into uh, bone marrow and somehow they are mobilized to injury sites. So in another study, we created stroke in the animal and when we inject breast milk stem cells, these cells aggregated in the site of injury and took part in the repair process. Um, my final question is, one common practice is that if a mum can't use her own milk in a baby, and we see this in our hospital quite often where we've got a baby needs some donor milk, we will go to another mother and get some breast milk from her. If you do get milk from a mum that's not your own, does that make a difference? Do you end up with someone else's mum being part of you? To me, it sounds like a kind of kinship. So you and the other baby the, who shared your mother's uh, breast milk have the original maternal cells that came from your mother. Very interestingly, in Islam, there is a concept of breast milk sibling. Any baby who are fed by a mother are considered to be breast milk siblings. So they are like sisters and brothers. They can even not get married with each other. So this is quite a curious case. So I think by understanding more and more about these breast milk cells, we will be defining any kind of kinship, not only in the brain, maybe in other tissues and organs. Amazing. And I suppose you could say if you end up with bits of your mum in your brain, that's food for thought, isn't it? Thank you very much. Gherkin Ostuk there. Feeding a baby with human milk is beneficial because it provides the right balance for a baby's nutritional needs. But this is not an option for all parents. And many in this situation tend to formula feeds as a substitute. But formulas are not made from human milk. And there are some elements of breast milk that can't be reproduced reliably in formula feeds. But could biotechnology provide us with a solution. The team at Biomilk, a company based in North Carolina, are using cultured breast cells to produce milk in a test tube. Co-founder Michelle Egger explains. Reaching for the formula tin today is absolutely what most parents are faced with having to do if, if breastfeeding isn't working because of the circumstances in their life. But we think there should be better options for parents and they shouldn't be forced to make trade-offs that put their children's nutrition at risk. If you do a head-to-head comparison between what's in formula and what's in breast milk, what's the difference? When you take a look at breast milk specifically, there's so many bioactive components that we know help seed the microbiome. Um, They help as a prebiotic actually support the development of healthy gut microbiome, which I think science still has only really scratched the surface of our understanding of microbiome development. And there's 2,500 plus macro and micronutrients that are very distinctly human that we know have an incredibly important outcome on the development of a child. Why don't we just put what's missing in the tin? There are a lot of companies trying to do that, frankly, uh, just trying to add back a few things to make formula a little bit closer to human milk. But there is really a lot of structure and function capability that exists in breast milk that we just can't replicate in formula. You're talking about one cell type that produces thousands of components simultaneously. 
So is that how you're seeking to attack the problem then? You're going to the cells arm with that recipe book and saying, well, can we harness the cells? Yeah, we like to joke our cells are our employees to some extent. They do the heavy lifting. Human mammary epithelial cells, which are the cell type that lines the mammary gland within the human body, create these layers where they're able to pull in nutrients from one side and turn on their biosynthetic pathways within the layer and secrete something different out the other side. So in the body, they do this in the mammary gland to pull in nutrients from the mother's blood, turn on their biosynthetic pathways and secrete milk into the gland, which is then suckled by a child. We basically do the same thing here at BioMilk, but we utilize a construct and a device, a bioreactor, which enables them to have the same orientation And we provide the stimulation and the actual nutrients through media instead of through blood as it would arrive in the mother's body. Genius. So this is like an in vitro breast, isn't it? In the sense that uh, on one side, you've got the goodies coming in akin to uh, like the mother's bloodstream. The cells draw out from that supply whatever they need and then turn it into what they would naturally do in the breast, which they secrete on the other side. And that's what you're capturing as your surrogate breast milk. Exactly. And a lot of our challenge is really in cracking the code on how these cells produce their best, how they're their most prolific, and then giving them those cues in that environment where they're able to be hyperlactive and produce as much milk in the highest quality as possible. Where did you get the cells from? We have two ways that we derive cells. One is through tissue. So women who undergo breast reduction surgery often will donate their tissue to science, fully informed on how the tissue will be used. And then we can also derive cells from milk. We have really strict bioethical protocols and processes we follow because we think people should know exactly how these cells are going to be utilized now and in the future. Obviously, the critical question is, is the product any good? Do you get something resembling milk, both visually, but also more importantly, biochemically? Is it, is it really human milk you're making? It's not bioidentical to breast milk. It's not going to be exactly what is produced at the breast, nor is it going to have the contamination that comes through skin-to-skin transfer that's good for a healthy baby gut microbiome. But as we look at omics level analysis, we are producing something that we're quite comfortable calling human milk based on the compositional levels of proteins, lipids, sugars that we would expect to see to have leaped beyond the idea of maybe we produce a component or two of human milk to producing thousands of the most important macro and micronutrients of breast milk all at once, we think is a pretty amazing advancement in science. Fundamentally, what we're doing is just harnessing nature, but we've never produced a product for infants like this before. So, you know, we're, we're only likely 18 months or so from a product that could be commercialized, but we have a lot of work to do to make sure we're all in agreement that it should be and is safe to be. Fascinating that, isn't it? Michelle Egger there talking about her new method for in vitro breast milk production. Another way parents can get human milk for their babies is using a human milk bank where donors with a surfeit of milk can make it available for others to use. But the milk for these banks is treated in a very different way to the delivery I received. Oh, oh. This must be the milk. Oh my goodness. So the postman must have come into my building and... Oh my goodness. What has been left at my door is a brown envelope 
with a pouch of liquid inside. I really wanted to speak to the postman, but maybe he knew what was in it and thought, I don't want to interact with that person. So let's open it up. I've never felt dread like this opening a parcel, if I'm honest. Oh, there's a cold pack, which is completely thawed out. And oh, it's a little bit cold, I guess. And then the milk itself is in a fridge bag, like a bag you put food in in the fridge and wrapped in tinfoil. I'm not going to unwrap that because I think I'll leave that to the professionals at the lab. This is a lab that tests milk donated to the Milk Bank here in Cambridge. And these donations are absolutely vital. Natalie Schenker, research fellow at Imperial College London and co-founder of the Human Milk Foundation, which operates the UK's first charitable non-profit human milk bank, told me about how donated milk is used and also how it is screened. Human milk banks work a lot like the blood transfusion service. So mums will go through a screening process where they are interviewed, they have a questionnaire to fill in, and then they'll go through blood tests, which exclude infectious diseases that can be transmitted through milk. Milk is collected and brought into the milk bank where it's specially heat treated, pasteurized, and it undergoes microbiology testing to make sure that there's no harmful bacteria after that process. Why is it now so important that we have these screens in place? The reason that milk banks have always had safety at their very heart is because over the last 40 years, donor human milk has primarily been used to feed very vulnerable, very low birth weight and premature babies, where even the slightest problem could could cause a real clinical problem for that baby. This milk can go to babies who are quite sick. Does it also go to other family situations, for example, if parents have adopted Indeed. So we have just celebrated today sending milk to the 400th family that we've supported in our community programme. And this is run through our charity. It's all entirely free to the parents. But what we have is a is a team of lactation consultants and breastfeeding counsellors who are able to support breastfeeding journeys as best as possible, but also to provide that donor milk as a bridge. In those situations, we've supported over 60 families where the mother's been diagnosed with cancer and is undergoing cancer therapy, or the parents had bilateral mastectomy, babies fed after adoption, after surrogacy. It's giving the choice to the parents, but also enabling that baby to receive human milk for a little bit longer. This is the Clinical Microbiology and Public Health Laboratory at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Hello, how are you? Very well, how are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, I come bearing yes. some milk. Have you ever seen milk <laughs> come to you like this before? Uh, no, but no. So this is brass milk, which has been bought from eBay. Oh, Right. <laughs> And we wanted to put it through to see, essentially... Natalie describes how human milk bought from the internet could cause problems if given to a baby. If that was coming through the post for my baby, I wouldn't be feeding it to my baby. And the reason for that is you've got no idea how that milk has been expressed, what equipment has been used, who's expressed the milk and what might be in there. And there's also the problem of milk that isn't refrigerated or frozen quite quickly not being of the quality that would be 
best to give to babies. And that's that's incredibly worrying. Women across the country, if you ask during pregnancy, over 85% want to feed their own babies. But by a week, fewer than half are doing so on the latest data that we have. Now, that's not for women not trying. It's for women being absolutely desperate and left to go through some really traumatic times, largely unsupported, because there's been no serious investment in this sort of support for decades. Families are desperate and where they have no other option, some will choose to take this rather more risky path. And that's really where the work of the charity is coming in, because we want to make a nationally equitable service. That would mean that there would be an alternative and that we can help work with other third sector organisations and NHS healthcare professionals to make sure that no family has to resort to this sort of approach to feed their babies. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. The shock on her face when I said that this milk had been bought on the internet. Never seen a sample quite like that before. So let's see what the results bring on Friday. Stay tuned and we'll tell you towards the end of the programme what turned up. Donating human milk is really useful for babies and parents who need it. But these donations are also now being used to help us advance science. And specifically to help us learn more about breast cancer. Alicia Jane Twigger from the University of Cambridge is here to tell us how. What we found overall is that women who breastfeed and lactate actually have an overall lower risk of breast cancer. But there are some factors that influence that. That could include how old a woman is when she becomes pregnant and lactates, as well as the duration of the breastfeeding experience. These studies so far are all correlational. Do we have any ideas about if there could be a mechanism and what that could be? There are actually some animal studies that have looked into this and have found that there seems to be some remnant cells after parity called parity-induced cells. And there is some evidence to suggest that there are some epigenetic changes that occur within the cells. Of course, this has been really difficult to validate in humans because getting human tissue, especially during pregnancy and lactation, is so difficult. So how are you using human milk to help us better understand breast cancer risk? So what we've done as part of our study is we've centrifuged fresh milk samples and then we're able to extract the cells. And we've done a whole bunch of different analysis, including growing the cells in culture, examining the protein profile and the transcriptomic or RNA profile to then see how similar the cells in the breast milk are compared to the cells in the actual breast itself. And what have you found in this research so far? So what we found is that the cells in milk seem to predominantly be either the secretory cells in milk or the immune cell subtypes. And the secretory cells in milk have a very similar profile to luminal progenitor cells in the breast tissue. And what do luminal progenitor cells normally do in breast tissue? Evidence from mouse studies have found that these luminal progenitor cells seem to be the ones that actually then differentiate into the milk secretory cells, but they also seem to be the cell of origin for many aggressive breast cancer subtypes. Mm. So if these are being excreted in the milk during lactation, do you think that this could potentially be a mechanism whereby these cells are being reduced in their numbers and this might be some sort of mechanism that is linking breastfeeding and breast cancer? 
there's two schools of thought as to why cells enter the milk. One reason could be that they somehow have a benefit for the infant. The other might be, as you say, like a clearing mechanism of the metabolically active, almost damaged cells into the milk. And it's a supportive mechanism for the mother to clear out these really energy exhausted cells. With these studies, so you found that in human milk, there are these cells that look similar to what we have in the breast tissue. And these cells are potentially progenitors for cancerous cells down the line. What's the next step there? So we found the cells. Now, what are we going to look for? So something that I'd like to do in the future is to look at kind of how DNA damaged these cells are and whether there are mutations and then see if we can use that as a proxy to then measure a woman's potential for getting breast cancer. So obviously the great thing about getting the cells out of the milk is it's non-invasive and we can do this across a really large population. And if this was a potential screening mechanism, what would be the case for individuals who do not lactate? Oh, that's a good question. I think we would only be able to do this, as I said, in this time frame for women who are pregnant and lactating or post-pregnancy during lactation. But hopefully overall, this will give us a better insight into what's happening in the breast during these changes and whether there might be strategies to try and encourage damaged cells to either be cleared or for them to be reprogrammed somehow using therapeutic strategies. How important has human milk donation been to your research? It's been hugely important, actually. And I feel so lucky to be supported by a huge community of women who have donated milk. Historically, I found that women who are donating to breastfeeding research are so interested. They're so supportive. And obviously, I couldn't do my work without them. It's really, really interesting to see human milk be used in this way to advance science. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously, this is my passion. This is something that I have found fascinating for a very long time. I'm very grateful to the community for their support in providing samples. And yeah, I'm really excited to be doing this. Fascinating interview. Now, outside the realm of medicine and science, breast milk has also acquired a new customer base, potentially explaining how Julia was able to so quickly get this stuff online. One of our naked scientists, Anushka Hander, got in touch with JJ Rittnauer, a bodybuilder from South Carolina, who has a unique motivation for consuming human milk. Everyone's always looking for an edge some way. And I just randomly came across this YouTube video, huge ripped guy, pro bodybuilder, and he was supplementing with his daughter's breast milk because I know we had extra milk in the fridge at the time from when my girlfriend was uh, breastfeeding and usually the extra stuff she would just dump down the drain. So I was like, well, instead of bending it, do you care if I put it in my shake? But she was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm just, we're just going to throw it away. If you think it's going to help, why not? I took it from the fridge and just dumped it in my shake and knocked it back. I saw that you had another person who you used to source the human milk. What was the first step in sourcing that human milk? You know, I was concerned, like, where am I going to get it from? You know, clearly my kids were grown at this point. So I did try to research and I just found that for someone like me walking off the street, hey, do you guys have breast milk to donate to me to use supplement in my shape? Everybody was saying no. Is that from a milk bank? Yeah, from the milk bank. I made a random post on one of my friends, Facebook pages who recently had a baby about how, you know, some people will pay for breast milk. 
I get a ding, a notification from Tiffany, who and it basically is like, hey, friend of a friend, I have some breast milk if you're like interested. And when you got the milk, did you take any precautions before you drank it? Uh, no, I sure didn't. I just looked at it. I didn't see, you know, it wasn't any crazy colors. I didn't see like any pink swirls or anything like that, which if I saw something like that, I would have, you know, assume it was like blood in the milk. It looked just like all the other breast milk I've seen. There's a series of things that can be passed down from human milk down to a child. Do you think that you were worried about any infections like HIV, STIs, any bacteria that would be passed to you? It didn't cross my mind. I know that through like childbirth and stuff like that, those can be transmitted then. But I didn't really put much thought into it being in the milk. Let's take Tiffany out of the equation. She decides to stop giving milk to anyone. (laughs) If you were presented with two new people, same situation, one which has screened the the milk, one which hasn't, and they're selling it at the same price, who would you go for? If it's the same and the only difference is that it's screened, I definitely would probably go with the screened one. It would be a different conversation. I'm like, well, you know, this milk is actually screened and pasteurized against pathogens and make sure that I'm being as healthy as possible in this space. Someone who is concerned about the increased adult interest in human milk is Sarah Steele, a senior research associate at Cambridge Public Health, focusing on problems at the interface of public health and law. Anushka Handa asked her what problems human milk sales might cause and why she thinks this market is more in demand. Clinicians, the World Health Organization, various midwifery and nursing bodies have put out there all this information on human milk as its wonder food. And that's really critical work that they're doing. But people misunderstand it. And there's a lot of online forums and a lot of social media posts that misconstrue it and engage in misinformation. Sometimes I even am concerned it's disinformation about the benefits of drinking this for adults. Are there any benefits to drinking this as an adult? And what risks are adults taking by drinking human milk as well? The answer, to be completely honest with you, is there's not enough good science to show what the benefits are of drinking this as an adult. Like any food, it can offer us benefits, but also like any food, it can pose us risks. This is a body fluid, right? It is at the end of the day something we're producing. It contains white blood cells. It can contain pus. It can contain red blood cells. You name it, it can contain it as a body fluid. Certain things pass across to the milk, caffeine, if people are consuming alcohol. So there's dietary influences and drug influences here. There are a range of things that actually wind up in breast milk that pose risks to consumers. We've seen advertisements spring up where you can buy this milk off of eBay shipped via like Royal Mail second class. I'd be really worried about that safety for an infant consumer, but for adults, The issue for me and the big risk here is for immune-compromised adults, which we're seeing this milk being touted online as a miracle food for. Are there other people who also buy this milk for, for various different reasons? So we've seen a lot of posts in bodybuilder forums, the gyms, and I think one of the big movements I'm seeing a lot of this is around clean eating. It's not necessarily cleaner in any sense. 
what is making me very nervous is as we move to view this as a cleany treat, as a kind of alternative to your whey protein shake, how are you handling it? How are you getting it? Who are you getting it from? Ethically, should adults be drinking this at all? I think as we move to consume this and see it as a commercial product or a thing that can be bought and sold, we could wind up in a situation where we engage in deeply troubling and unethical practices. If adult consumers start to see this as a viable alternative to normal kind of those those milks on the supermarket shelves, how do we get enough of it, right? That we end up with women pumping for profit to become, in effect, human dairy cows. That is a horrifying scenario to me. If adult consumers drink this in vast quantities and see this as the new whey protein shake, we need to ask where the milk comes from and have regulatory oversight to make sure that unethical practices aren't continued. A bit of a scary situation outlined by Sarah there. Indeed. Well, speaking of human milk being sold online, you probably remember earlier on in the programme, you heard Julia being quite surprised herself <laughs> when the sample she had ordered on eBay turned up at her doorstep and the postman hot-footed it before she had a chance to find out how surprised he was. Well, I've got the lab results, Julia, because I took this into our laboratory at um, the Addenbrookes Hospital in Cambridge and asked them to put this through the protocol that we use in the hospital when a mother donates some some breast milk for use in, for instance, our neonatal intensive care unit for a baby whose mum might not be able to breastfeed it. And we have a, a protocol we follow to test, not for viruses under these circumstances, but for bacteria. Now, I've kept you in the dark to a certain extent here. What do you think we found? I think the plates will be teeming with bacteria because, well, breast milk has bacteria in it anyway. So that's what I'm thinking, lots of growth. What did we see? That's exactly what I expected to see because, as you say, our skin is covered in microbes and we know that that babies rely on getting those from their mums because it helps to set up their intestinal flora. I was gobsmacked to find that these plates were completely clear. This was sterile. There were no organisms detected at all. What? And the only way I can suggest this is either someone had pasteurised this milk or added something to stop bacteria growing and kill them all off, or was it even breast milk? We don't know, actually. So I suggest there's scope for another programme in this and you and I have to go away and find out. And that is it for this week. Next time we are celebrating the Oscars and the BAFTAs with a focus on film. What are some of the science secrets of the nominated flicks this year? Tune in next week to find out. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent 
to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.